Again, the Buddha Dharma, the teachings of the Buddhas, I would suggest is primarily concerned with living beings, like humans uh, and uh, animals. And if there's some other kinds of living beings that aren't humans or animals, it's concerned with them too, and especially concerned with their suffering and how they relate to their suffering and how, yeah, and how sometimes the way they relate to their suffering seems to cause suffering to the other sentient beings. So it's, it's primarily concerned with the suffering of living beings and how to help living beings relate to their suffering in such a way that they would become free of their suffering and not only free of it, but would be able to help other living beings be, find a way to skillfully relate to their suffering in such a way that they also would become free. This is the, I think, I would suggest maybe the primary concern of the teachings of the Buddhas. So, one of the teachings of the Buddha is that the reason for suffering, the reason the living being suffers is because living beings grasp their life. They cling to it. And the reason they cling to it is because they think there's something there to cling to. And the reason they think there's something there to cling to is because they're deluded. They have a misconception of life. They think life comes in a you know, substantial, permanent form. And when they see substantial things, they are strongly inclined to try to grasp substantial things. Humans are like that, it seems to me. But also dogs are like that, and cats are like that, and tigers are like that, and rats are like that, and also cells are like that. The cells in our body actually also seem to be diluted. So from the very basis of our life up to complex organizations of it, there seems to be the generation of delusion of substantial things. Another way to say it is we have minds which construct appearances in such a way that they look like they're separate from us. We can close our eyes and see in our mind that we can see things in such a way that they seem separate. But actually what we're looking at is our mind. What's in front of us is our mind. Now you're there too, but between you and me is my mental construction of you. And between you and me is your mental construction of me. You are not my mental construction. I am not your mental construction. But I have a mental construction of you. Or rather, my mind creates a story about you. Like there's this wonderful person named Deborah. Deborah is not my wonderful story about her. This is excellent student of the Dharma here named Catherine. That's my story. She's not that story. 
She's not that story. She is infinite, and so is Deborah. They're infinite. They're, they're not, my story does not reach them. Nonetheless, being a sentient being, my mind makes a story. Oh, there's another wonderful person. There's another wonderful person. I have wonderful stories today. <laughs> How nice. But my stories are delusions. They're not who you are. But I can't stop my mind from making stories of you. I cannot say, don't make a story about that woman over there. Don't do it. <laughs> I, can, I can say that, but that's another story. <laughs> I cannot stop my mind from making stories. That's what it does. Minds are storytellers, constantly making stories. And not only that, but they look real. They're not, and they look real. <laughs> and a basic element of all the stories is all these wonderful people are separate from me. Some I kind of know that that's ridiculous. Like mothers sometimes look at their kids who look separate, but they kind of know it's not true. But then sometimes they think it really is true. This person is a monster, and they're not me. Anyway, sentient beings have problems like this. They are deluded. Sentient beings are not enlightened. Buddhas are enlightened. Sentient beings are not. And Buddhas teach sentient beings how they're deluded. And if sentient beings receive these teachings about how they're deluded, and then receive practices about to apply these teachings, they become Buddhas. In other words, they come to see that other beings are not what they think of them, and other beings are not separate. They get to see that. And when they see that, then they continue the practices which cause them to see that with uh, no obstruction. They continue the practices easily. I also talked at the beginning in the middle, and now I talk about aspiration. And uh, so I ask, I ask you, I ask myself again and again, what is, what is the greatest aspiration of your life? And again, I mention, aspiration means a great wish. What is the greatest of the great wishes in your life? What's the most important thing in this precious life for you? I ask you that. And then I wait for a long time, and then I say, I just thought I might mention to you about the aspirations that make Buddhas. So Zen temples are sometimes called uh, Zen gardens, or Zen forests. You know, concentration gardens or concentration forests. But Zen temples are also called Buddha-making houses, houses for making Buddhas. And Buddhas are the fruit and the realization of an aspiration. The thing that makes Buddhas is a great wish. That's what makes Buddhas. What is the wish that makes Buddhas? The wish that makes Buddhas is 
wishing to realize a state of maximal or optimal beneficence, optimal helpfulness in order to help all beings. The wish to realize complete wisdom, which needs to be based on great compassion, to realize, to realize great compassion and wisdom in order to benefit all beings. That wish, that aspiration, is the aspiration which is the seed of Buddhahood. And if that aspiration is cared for, it, com it comes to fruit as Buddhahood. And so I ask you what your aspiration is, and now I've told you what the aspiration of, the, of which make Buddhas, that makes Buddhas. And then the question is, how does your aspiration relate to that? That's for you to look at, and, you can t and many of you have told me about your aspiration and how it relates to this Buddha aspiration, which is also called bodhisattva aspiration. Bodhisattva refers to those who have this aspiration and are caring for it. So the Zen house is a house to care for this aspiration and make Buddhas out of it. And the way that you care for it, this aspiration, is called bodhisattva training or Buddha training. This aspiration is, of course, it's, it could be said to be wonderful because it, it is the basis of Buddhas. It's what leads to Buddhahood. It's not just compassion. It's wishing to realize the most effective manifestation of compassion. It's wonderful. But it will not be realized without training. It's something that happens in living beings or something that happens to living beings. But it, has to, it requires training. So we've been talking about how do you train in such a way as to protect and develop this aspiration. And what we've been saying is the way to protect this aspiration, there's two basic descriptions of the training that protects it. One description is what's called the six perfections, which are generosity, ethical discipline, patience, enthusiastic effort, concentration, and wisdom. These are practices which protect and develop this aspiration into the most helpful situation for living beings. Another way to talk about it is in terms of three pure precepts. The precept of restraint, the precept of gathering all wholesome practices, which is actually the six perfections I just mentioned, and then the practice of embracing and nurturing and maturing all beings. Those are the three. The three include the six, and the six 
include the three. The second of the six is the three, and the second of the three is the six. The first of the three is the sixth of the six. The first of the three is wisdom. The sixth of the sixth is wisdom. So I'll talk a little bit about these training methods. Another thing that just popped in my mind is that a basic principle that I've been saying is that by practicing compassion in response to the untrue, one enters the true. And once entering the true, the compassion by which you entered becomes unhindered. Another way, slightly changing. By practicing compassion towards unreality, towards illusion and delusion, which we have plenty of. By practicing compassion towards the unreal, one enters reality. And after entering reality, the compassion is unhindered. That's sort of the title of this week's teachings. Zen practice before and after awakening. Zen practice before and after entry into reality. If we try to practice compassion before we realize reality, we have more or less difficult time. We can practice compassion even before we enter reality. But it sometimes is really hard. For example, if you see someone and you think they're separate from you and you believe it, sometimes it's hard to be generous to them. If you see somebody and you think they're your enemy and you think they're cruel, it sometimes is hard when you think somebody's cruel to practice compassion towards them. Because you believe the story that they're your cruel enemy. If you think somebody's a Democrat or a Republican, if you think somebody's this or that, and you believe it because you have not entered reality, you still believe what you think of people. If you think that, then sometimes it's hard to practice compassion. But not impossible. Sometimes you can think, this person's cruel, and you can still say, welcome. Sometimes you can think someone's really rude and say, thank you. Sometimes you can practice generosity towards people that you have a story about, and the story you have about them is that they're really a, a difficult person to welcome. You have a story, I, would, I don't want this person in my house. But still, you may have heard about 
the aspiration, and, and you matter, as a matter of fact, you may have heard about the aspiration and said, you may have heard of the aspiration to realize Buddhahood and to practice compassion towards all beings, for all beings. You may have heard of that and felt that that was really your aspiration. And then you remember, oh yeah, well when difficult guests come, when people come who I do not want in my house, there's a practice saying, come on in, welcome. I heard of that and I'm gonna try it. Even though I do not want this person in my house, I'm gonna say, welcome. And I say it, and I didn't mean it. It wasn't sincere. I failed. But then again, I try, and I try, and finally, I sincerely welcome somebody who I do not want in my house. But even though I don't want them in my house, I want to welcome them. Even though I don't like them, I want to love them. But it's sometimes it's hard to do that because if I have not entered into reality, and when I enter reality, I see that my story about this person is not who they are. I don't deny my story. I'm kind to my story. And if I'm kind to my story, I realize my story is not true. The truth is that this person is an infinite wonder who I wish to practice compassion towards, whether I see that or not. But if I see it, it will be easy to practice compassion. So once you enter reality, it's easy to be compassionate and generous with everybody. It's easy to be patient with painful guests. It's easy to be careful with guests. It's easy to be calm with guests. And it's easy, of course, to see them because you already do. It's easy to see who they are. They are your life. Your life is infinite. It doesn't end with other people. It completely includes the life of all beings. All beings' life includes you. When you see that, it's not too difficult to practice compassion. And even with our present understanding, many people can see, that person is my life. I have no problem, maybe a little problem. I don't have too much problem giving my life to this person because they're my life. And that's a wonderful moment when you look at someone and you feel like, okay, this may be uncomfortable, but I'm gonna give my life to them. Quite a few people, as you know, have, are willing to give their kidneys to people. It's one of the less painful parts of your body to give away. Because they, they give you anesthetic usually when they take it out. <laughs> and then they sew it up and give you antibiotics and stuff. It's not that bad. Plus, you don't really need it. So that's a popular gift that people are giving. <laughs> and there's other more advanced gifts. But when you understand that your life is infinite, when you see that your life is infinite, when you see that your life doesn't end around your skin, and, other, and your life doesn't stop with other people's skin, and the space in between is filled with life, when you see that, 
then practicing generosity and ethics and patience and so on aren't so, are, are easy and, one, and, and, and still continue to be wonderful. Even, when the, even before you see the truth, these practices are wonderful. Even when they're difficult, they're still wonderful when you practice them. And even when they're difficult and you don't practice them, it's not wonderful that you don't. So when it's difficult to be generous and you're not generous, it's not good. But when it's difficult and you practice generosity, it is good. If you aspire to the welfare of all beings, then generosity is like, uh, well, again, everybody is infinite. Every life is infinite and life is intimate, and all these practices are infinite. And as also I mentioned earlier, in the practice of giving, as you get into it, you realize that part of the practice of giving is ethics. In other words, part of the practice of giving is being careful with your giving, being vigilant. Part of giving is to be gentle. Some people are very generous, but they're rough with the way they give like they drop big chunks of gold on people. They throw gold bullion at people. Well, actually, they should handle it gently, because if you throw it at somebody, it could hurt them. So even if you give somebody a piece of gold bullion, those things weigh, how much do those things weigh? 10 pounds? 20 pounds? They're worth a lot of money, right? Nice gift, right? But you shouldn't throw it at somebody. You should handle it carefully. Matter of fact, you should ask them if, they, if it's too heavy for them and you could carry it for them. Even though you're generous, you still need to be gentle. You still need to be careful. And if you look at generosity, you see that carefulness is included. And also in generosity, patience is included. And also enthusiasm is included. And also concentration is included. And wisdom's there too. But still, in the development from the wish to realize enlightenment for the welfare of beings in the development we start developing that wish with giving. Then ethics, then patience, then enthusiasm. And I want to say again that, again, in the enthusiasm part, we come back to aspiration. Aspiration is the source, the root of energy for practice. So if you aspire to live for the welfare of others, if you aspire to be a helpful presence in this world, then to protect that aspiration, you do these practices of compassion. But that aspiration, which needs to be followed up with compassion, the aspiration is the source of the energy to start practicing the compassion. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the Brooklyn Zen Center. Our programs are given free of charge and made possible by the donations we receive. For more information on supporting Brooklyn Zen Center, please visit the giving section of brooklynzen.org.